Welcome back to our podcast within a podcast, pottering around the irritable but well-dressed ghost haunting Mangum Reads. We are three muggles who are left with more questions than ever about what life is like as a hat. My name is Sarah. I am joined, as always, by my co-host BJ and Spencer. How are you all doing? You, you raised the exact issue I've got of where I would love to be able to bring up the issue of, good God, what have we learned about the life of a hat on questions? <laughs> But at that point, we're just getting into the subject of philosophy and just straight up pondering. There's nothing you could answer on the subject of, what's it like to live as a hat in Dumbledore's office other than to say, probably interesting. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I guess we, I, I don't know. There are some inferences that we can make from this chapter, I suppose, which is uh, chapter 11 of the fifth book of Harry Potter, uh, The Sorting Hat's New Song which I incorrectly identified at the end of our last episode as a short chapter. It's relatively short. And it's not terribly long. It's not exactly It's not like end of book one. long. <laughs> it's um, not explain everything that happened over the course of a 500-page book in one chapter long. Yes. Um, but before we get into that, I have a quick question. So when the students put on the uh, sorting hat, are they haberdashing? <laughs> the, yes, I think hats. so. I think haberdashing is making hats, is it not? That is true. Uh, I thought it was it was or also buying s- hats. I'll look it up. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know well, what the BJ, verb actually means. While BJ checks the definition as if he's, as if he's doing wizard wheezes early, Sarah, what 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 do we actually talk about in this podcast? Yeah, well, sometimes we talk about things other than hats. We generally do a rapid fire recap. Uh, BJ has wizard wheezes, which he has, he has in fact started early here. Um, Spencer, we do newbies notes with Spencer. Uh, we award house points, and then we have questions and queries, qualms and quibbles, many of which might be hat-related this time. TBD, I suppose. Uh, BJ, do you have an answer for us? Uh, haberdashery is, is uh, having to do with men's clothing, um, and is actually more uh, specifically, and uh, for, for what we're in, um, going to have to do with small items used in sewing, such as button zippers th- or threads, because that is the British version. Mm. Uh, so, so we're really you. You should have made a pun about millinery. Yes, <laughs> but it didn't have the dashing in it, and no, so it you know it wasn't ripe for for a, a hat joke or a pun. And, so. and, and look, look at that picture of the hat. That that is a hat that is dashing about and enjoying itself. That is not a milling about hat. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't make anybody look dashing, though. Mm. Sarah, how on earth are you going to do this recap? Well, things actually it, happen in this chapter, so my recap is shorter than it normally is. No, I am um, I am going to put... I'm going to make a bet. I went over my two minutes last time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm going to put a bet in, and I am going to make a bet for one minute and 53 seconds. Precision. All right. And if it's in meter and or rhyme, I will get you a Harry Potter gift. (laughs) I wish I had known that beforehand. All right. Whenever you're ready. For the moment, they're focused on where Hagrid is. Professor Grubbly Plank has taken over and Luna has thoughts on Hagrid's merit as a teacher. The carriages take off towards the castle and there's no sign of life in Hagrid's cabin either. Nor is he in the Great Hall as they settle in uh, into the house tables. Maybe he's not back from his mission yet. But they're distracted by another new arrival up at the staff table. That Umbridge woman from Harry's hearing is talking to Dumbledore. Hermione's quick to suss out that Fudge's mole is teaching defense against the dark arts. The first years make their way in with McGonagall and face the sorting hat. Its song this year is different. It's about disunion and unrest between the houses, about who's worthy of teaching and how that division nearly broke Hogwarts. It ends with a dire warning for unity and everyone's a bit taken aback after it's over. Nearly Headless Nick confirms that the hat has given warnings before, anytime it feels the school is threatened. The first years are sorted and Dumbledore starts the feast. Ron wants to know how the hat would know the school was in danger in the first place. Nick suggests it probably picks up all manner of things in Dumbledore's office before leaving in a huff. Dumbledore brings uh, begins his actual speech with a normal warnings, he also confirms new staffing, Grubbly Plank and Umbridge. Before he can move on, Umbridge takes the stage for herself, shocking even Professor Sprout. 
Um, talking to them as if they're five, she then launches into a carefully crafted speech about the ministry's interest in their education and the dangers of progress. It, everyone but Hermione tunes out. What she understands is that the ministry's interfering at Hogwarts. At the end of the meal, Ron and Hermione go to do prefect duty, so Harry leaves the Great Hall alone with everyone staring at him. By the time he gets to the dormitory, he's done. But there's one more row to be had. Dean Thomas is pleasant to Harry, but Seamus's mom decided Harry and Dumbledore were both liars and don't want him to come didn't want him to come back. Harry responds poorly to Seamus wanting to know what happened with Cedric at the cup, and Ron comes in and gets involved in the argument. For the record, Neville's grand believes Dumbledore. Things sort of peter out with everyone in a bad mood, and Harry wondering how many times he'll have this conversation. Close, you made it. 152-53. Well done. Thanks. Impressive. Um, we do have a lot of details that we need to talk about in this chapter, though, that did not make it into the recap. But first... Uh, BJ, what are you wheezing about other than dashing haberdashery delights? So, uh, about a page in, there's a sentence that I find interesting. Okay. Um, it's interesting in a way that, that is different than many other of J.K. Rowling's interesting sentences. It is, Hogwarts Castle, comma, however, comma, loomed ever closer, colon, a towering mass of turrets, comma, jet black against the dark sky, here and there, window blazing fiery bright above them. And so, what is the them? I know what it's supposed to be, but but technically in the sentence, this indicates that the windows are hovering above the turrets. And that is a much more <laughs> magical building than one would otherwise expect. It's Hogwarts, sir. You can't assume necessarily there's any logic going into this. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that like architectural soundness is necessarily the I hundred percent agree. I mean it to be. It is it is very obvious that that the them is referring to the students that are coming in. However, it is much more entertaining to read it as the the windows are just hovering above the castle. Sure. (laughs) I also it's interesting, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of who the narrator is and what position the narrator mm-hmm. is taking here. I, mm-hmm. This is a kind of an interesting sentence, not only in in the strange um, architectural details that may or may not be happening here, but the kind of placement of Hogwarts itself as a character here. I think we've always gotten the sense that Hogwarts the castle is kind of its own character, but this mm-hmm. is cementing it like very specifically at the beginning of this chapter in ways that I don't think, I don't know that we've really gotten before. Yes. Hogwarts is looming in a way that other buildings may or may not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the black residence is a bit more um, acerbic uh, than looming. Is it glowering? Yes, perhaps. <laughs> um, it, it is at least looking down its nose at you or mm. uh, its eaves. Sure. <laughs> um, so I did not know what an Alice band was. Um, I... I don't know if this is common parlance, uh, but this is in the clothing uh, that uh, Dolores Umbridge is wearing. Mm. Uh, It's a horrible pink Alice bit that matched the fluffy pink cardigan she wore over her robes. Hmm. Um, I have never, is that a headband? Yeah, it's just a headband. As far as I can tell, a normal headband, maybe it's a puffy one. Um, I, I didn't research it much further than just looking up what the yeah. images were because I didn't come up with something. Yeah, I have, I've read this book many, many times and have never once noted that they were calling it an Alice band. I think I probably just sort of glossed over it as a headband. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of expected um, sort of a, a ribbon type band that went sort of around the head the way the direction that a brim of a hat would with a bow mm-hmm. rather than a more typical headband that is uh it's the kind of horseshoe shape that yeah is, the horseshoe is usually shape. Ha- like it's hard in some way right i was about to say you know a coronal uh type but that's not very uh explanatory <laughs> to people that don't regularly look at brains According to this, oh. it originates from the band that Alice from Alice in Wonderland wore. Yeah, that is very interesting. Yeah, interesting. When you said from the band, I was just like, I don't think Alice in Chains ever had. <laughs> 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 Why not? <laughs> so, 
um but yes that that makes a lot more sense um and also is super british i mean to Mm. call something like they call vacuum Mm -hmm. cleaners hoovers like it's like all right well here's a cultural touchstone that we're going to refer to it by proper name because because we will 150 years after the thing itself came out yeah yeah or was relevant um the cardigan over the robes is is a look that I'm I feel like wasn't done in the movies and is kind of disappointingly not done. Yeah. Um, this is I can there are liberty obviously liberties taken with when the robes are worn. The robes are worn less in the movies than the books would indicate. Um Yeah. And this becomes Umbridge's character becomes one who just wears a sort of like very conservative but also childish pink skirt suit. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. In in a way that that Hillary's suits are not. Yes. Okay. Yeah, this is what like it's it it's sort of like kind of Chanel suity, but not as high end. Okay. That's a niche reference, but <laughs> we can move right on. <laughs> um, I don't remember if. We've had this name before. I feel like I would have remembered it if we did. Uh, Mimsy Porpington. Um, oh yeah, it, it's a it's a pretty great one. Um, also, Sir Nicholas de Mimsy Porpington seems a bit foreign for a ghost in Hogwarts, but uh, I guess we'll sort of let that pass. Yeah, I think we got this in the very first book, the very first time we met Nearly Headless Nick. Yeah, I mean, that but it's sense. been a while since we have gotten his foot, his full name. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, I guess the last thing that that is, is less of a wheeze and just more a comment about the the state of the wizarding world is, it's fascinating to me that this uh, that they're like being divided into two camps: the ones that read the Daily Prophet and believe believe everything in it, and the ones that don't, and. The Daily Prophet is just such a garbage rag that that's a really funny dividing line. Um, it I hasn't mean, always been, though, I think is. It, it, it also struck me as being so unfortunately authentic for the real world in well, terms of just yeah. that kind of media source separations that have started to divide people, as particularly as we've seen over the last few years, of where if somebody's drawing particular, if someone has a particular source of media that they like to the exclusion of all others, you may find it hard to be friends with them at a certain point. Sure, but is the Daily Mirror really getting like fifty percent of the population or more? Well, yeah. I mean, the problem really here, which gets kind of fleshed out more later, is that there isn't another like newspaper of record. Um, yeah. In Wizarding Society, you know, we've seen now we've seen the Quibbler, and then we've seen which is. <laughs> Bat shit, but sometimes right, which is interesting. And um, you know, we've Got seen it. things like Witch Weekly, but those are that's an inter- entertainment magazine. Um, so, so, so there's really are, nothing else. So are, is are, is the Quibbler basically Teen Vogue? <laughs> well, we'll see it again. You can make your own assessment. <laughs> Teen Vogue meets the National Enquirer. <laughs> I, hell, I've read that. Mm-hmm. Um, any other oh. wheezes, BJ? Uh, I think that's it for this chapter. Um, it was a, uh, un- unless I'm going to wheeze about a a somewhat freeform poem, uh, which <laughs> well, I'll be discussing it in some detail. So you'll have, you'll be you'll be able to do so. Don't worry. Uh, well, first point on newbie's notes: What camp do we all respectively fall in in the assessment of Hagrid as a teacher? Because a strict line is quickly drawn between Luna and quietly Hermione on one side and Harry, Ron, and Ginny on the other. Mm-hmm. Where would y'all fall when it came to, you know, if you were in Hagrid's class, would you be okay with this or be happy for a change? Mm, so I think he's a good teacher. And I I will, I guess what I will say is he's not the typical teacher and judging him by those standards, I think is a poor choice. I mean, but I think it's also like, you can have two types of art teacher. You can have an art teacher that has you do art all the time and the kids end up messy 
and sometimes chew crayons or you can have the the art teacher that informs you about all of you know the history of art and makes you memorize dates of major paintings and when artists lived i i think that in terms of producing a well-rounded person that has any interest in art uh i know which i would choose um <laughs> so i don't know that's where i fall on this Sure. Yeah, I'm here for Hagrid's class. I love every minute of it, um, except when he lost confidence and spent a quarter of a year doing flubberworms. Um, but the only the only qualm I have about this, as a person who cares about grades and achievements in the world to a degree to which I am not entirely comfortable, mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. that there are standardized tests associated with these classes. <laughs> This is the divide I reach with this guy, where it almost feels like he'd be ideally skilled for a particular kind of course and a particular level of course. Like if he was doing a skills course or like an appreciation course or particularly anything for like the younger students, he's ideal. He's giving them that kind of foundation and passion in it. But if you ask this guy to like teach an AP on this subject, God help you. And unfortunately, he's the only guy for all of that. (laughs) Yeah, but like it's not like they're going to college and it's not like they're getting tested. in college. They're they're in something, and they're <laughs> also the only education they get. And and so, it's also just differentiating the students from other students. So it's not an AP course where you're going up against na- like nationally other other students. I mean the the owls, as far as I understand, have absolutely no impact on the the wizards in uh, Salem or. Uh, no, but they do. Um, I mean, this this does, and we get a lot more. The fifth year is their is their owl year, so we get a lot more information about standardized testing in the wizarding world moving forward. Um, but so no, they're not like international standards. Um, but it is a very British system whereby, like, if you do not achieve a quarter, so they're run by the ministry that has internal standards that they set. Um, if you do not reach certain levels, you cannot progress in continued study in that particular area. And if you don't get a level of achievement, whether it's an owl or a newt, you are disqualified from taking jobs and particular types of jobs. Um, it's a big deal. Hold on a second. So the ministry decides what jobs wizards can take based on test scores that, that is a closed grading system? Yeah. BJ's pondering corruption and gamesmanship already. Um, I think that there's a what is, for all intents and purposes, an independent board that does the testing um, and possibly comes up with the standards as well. And at least in what we see here, there's no reason to assume that they are that that is um, being gamed in any way. Especially if, with if things Percy we see later. If survives these books, he's 100% going to be on that quote-unquote <laughs> oh, wow. board. Dream job. Absolutely. Dream job for him. Absolutely. Uh, so I only, I only say that to say that like in the insular world in which we are living, the standardized tests actually matter, at least for well, now. <laughs> well, as I said, I'm mixed on the subject of Hagrid. I think he can do certain things very well and has otherwise clear weaknesses, but I think he very much embodies the teaching philosophy that Dumbledore wants to bring to the school. And I think that does at least set a common theme for going into their you know, teaching and what they're trying to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of somebody that seems like the utter anathema to that common theme, oh God, Dolores Umbridge is here now. Uh, so the question, the, the, the thing that I'm struggling to deal with is that we all know about Dolores Umbridge, and I'm trying to get. Do we? I, I, I've met her once. I've I've seen. A... Ha, have you literally never read anything about bad characters in books on the internet? Because she, she's commonly cited in terms of evil characters, but I don't know details. Right. Of I, she so so I guess that's what I'm saying. Like I'm trying. She has a weird feel to her, but like it's so colored by basically a decade of. Who's the worst character in any book ever? Oh, it's Dolores Umbridge by a you know a wide margin. Country mile. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that if if we could somehow like go back and wipe our brains f- completely fresh, I don't know that like what we have gotten. Yes, there was some weirdness at the hearing um, 
but I'm not sure that at this point we would know, we would have such a weird feeling about her. I would say purely from this text, we'd at least have a sense of foreboding. I mean, the fact that she served in the Wizengamot and voted against Harry is already telling us something right there. The fact that she at least seems to be one of, not necessarily a toady, but at least a loyal follower of Fudge's camp does not say great things about her. And I'm also very much with Hermione. It's her, her speech is like eight layers of subtext that is all concerning. And I don't even know if some of it is subtext. Some of it's just plain text. I mean, there's a lot of elitist, like pure blood shit that appears to be going into this in terms of our unique and ancient skills that must be guarded unless we lose them forever. Uh, progress for progress sake must be discouraged. The tried, tested traditions that require no tinkering. And my favorite, pruning wherever we find practices that ought to be prohibited. Having a government minister running already running the idea of defense against the dark arts, who previously has served in the wizen gamut, is already a concerning enough background, but now throwing this kind of philosophy into the mix, I would be kind of terrified. This is she a is minister? Ah, uh, she's was she, was she a deputy to Fudge? Was that what? It, what we're yeah, she's deputy to the deputy okay. to the prime minister. Um, so I'm just left utterly baffled by. I would have assumed that Dumbledore would be dead and in the ground before this was before you would allow this to happen. I would. I. I, I cannot imagine any scenario where literal kicking and screaming has not occurred. But he's sitting on the stage with this woman, at least putting on pretenses of being polite. And so I'm going to delight in finding out what background led to this particular series of events and how long it's been in motion, given Dumbledore's very choice remarks to the minister about the ministry does not have any influence over Hogwarts or any right to interfere in its affairs, to now his own deputy is serving as one of the senior teachers. Did Was Dumbledore essentially poking, po- poking at the fact that this was happening and he was unhappy with it? Or is this in response to Dumbledore's poking, effectively? Great Ah, question. We'll find out. Uh, As for people going entirely off script, Dear God Sorting Hat. Uh, I don't think anyone saw that coming, and you just made the uh, initial ceremony for the first years incredibly awkward. On the other hand, the speech, or the I'll call it a speech, his extended song-slash-poem, is really interesting. There's so much to unpack about this thing. For one... How much did you like the history, Spencer? Were you super, super excited? I was taking notes. I was so excited. <laughs> I was making little highlights in the margin on Kindle. Uh, it, yeah, I, for one, just one thing I was just thoroughly amused by from a Hufflepuff pride standpoint is just that the Hufflepuffs just do not give a shit about all the other elitists that are trying to gate what students get in. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, let's educate everyone and give them the same great same great education. Are, are we really fighting about this? Yeah, Helga okay, Hufflepuff is, is low-key a badass. <laughs> I, I loved it. I mean, as, as the obvious team Hufflepuff among us, I was represent. I was represented and down. <laughs> uh, it's uh, some of the They'll lines. will take the are, short bus wizards. You would say that, you <laughs> Slytherin bastard. Uh, I, I some of the lines too are just really interesting to unpack. And like one line, and never since the founders four whittled down to three have the houses been united as they were meant to be. And been following up that with, but this year I'll go further, listen close, closely to my song. Though condemned I am to split you, still I worry that it's wrong. And though I must fulfill my duty and must quarter every year, still I wonder whether sorting may not bring the end I fear. What is this? I mean, this is... This <laughs> is, is the, the hat evil? Is the hat being forced to do evil? It's not perfectly willing in this process. Is the hat just having an existential crisis? The, the hat is very much uncertain of its position in the universe and is mm-hmm. fundamentally questioning it. It's like, my name is the Sorting Hat, and I reject that. And it's also super interesting because we've talked a little bit about the hat before, but it seems to have intimate knowledge of a whole lot of things that mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like it should. Um, I mean, not just from, oh, it's in Dumbledore's office. And it's like, yeah, but... That doesn't give you, like, a lot of history of the entire school unless it's been in the headmaster's office sort of the entire time. And even then, like, that doesn't really... What? It's Gryffindor's hat, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. So it has been around a long damn time. We don't know how long it's been animate. I don't know if he... I mean, if he originally elected to get a talking hat, that's an interesting reveal about (laughs) Dr. Gryffindor and his particular taste. I mean, I would assume that he made the hat talking and as some sort of advisor 
would be my best guess. Because, well, because of the other OP object that was in the hat uh, that, that mm-hmm. you know, we may or may not ever see again because why, why not just solve problems with a magic sword from a hat? Um, this is not Nabokov's gun. Not Nabokov. <laughs> I've done this before. Hold on. No, I did this. We've had this exact conversation before. Chekhov's gun. Hey. There it is. <laughs> you're you're getting it. Uh, I, I love moments and stories of where we start to realize that the hit that what we understood about history, what we're judged about current events, may not be entirely accurate and may be driven by other intervening events that we do not at present understand. That's a great way to suddenly broaden your lore and suddenly make your readers question the things they've seen before. And I'm all here for it. I'm suddenly being forced to consider that the structure of Hogwarts that we've joked about, that we've lamented, that we've criticized, may not have been originally intended and may be outright hostile to what the Wizarding World needs. But we did know some about it, and we have talked about this before, that uh, we did know that Slytherin wanted it to be only for pure bloods, basically mm-hmm. flipped everybody the bird and said, if y'all are going to train non-pure bloods, I'm out. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, though I'm getting to be more and more confused as to like what pure blood wizards looked like way back when, because this kind of feels like a, a Adam and Eve situation, um, <laughs> or, or maybe uh, Noah after the flood. Um, mm. But we have a lot of that there. Like I guess we we haven't gotten as much about the houses and like when the houses sprung up in relation to those wizards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this also does talk a little bit about presumably their longevity because it takes a little while to establish a school to have a reasonable number uh, like of people. So you have them in sure. different houses. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a total of like 18 people in four houses, I mean, what are we doing? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, this also would be great foreshadowing if they got rid of the houses out at some point in the near future. Um, I can't imagine that that is actually going to happen, but I feel like this would be a really good insert Mm -hmm. at this time. Eventually, Hufflepuff's just going to riot. They control the source of food. They they eventually can control the school. Uh, and for, for me that loves history and loves to find out more, we about, we nearly have, we nearly have nearly headless Nick provide us further insight into this and further background only to have Ron just be a rude ass and prevent us from learning anymore. I can't believe that like two chapters ago, I was saying this character was on the upturn, that this character was going to impress me and he was going to rise to the occasion. He is aiming to disappoint me at every possible turn. It's just like. He is such an ignorant ass this entire chapter and it frustrates the shit of me. Like even the point of like it's the upper it's the young the underclassmen's first day. They're scared, they don't know what to do, and he bellows out loud, Hey midgets, come here. It's like, dude, there are rules of decorum. You're a prefect now, for love of God. <laughs> right. He's uh, figuring it out. I mean he's only there because Dumbledore is shipping him and Hermione, so very possible. Um, um go ahead. on this on the subject of Dumbledore, uh, I have attended many graduation speeches, several of my own, several for other people. My absolute favorite was was my UNC graduation of where it rained so hard, the entire series of speeches was four minutes, and then they just said, you've graduated and let us all leave. <laughs> so I am all here for Dumbledore speeches. They're the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Short uh, speeches are the best. Especially guess, the pre-dinner ones. Oh, yeah. So I guess I wanted to sort of talk a little bit more about who knows about the hat songs and are they cataloged anywhere because this feels like something super important to be writing down every so often yeah i feel Uh, like we've had this conversation before and i am not i don't know yeah because we talked about you know are the hat songs unique every year yeah Uh, like what's contained in them and stuff like that and you know Nearly Headless Nick does seem like a good source of information, but there seems like there should be a better ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if the hat ends up repeating itself every 60 years, I'm sure it would prefer there's not any record on this point. Just so, 
it's got perfect records that it wants to crib without anyone second guessing why there's the same particular verse and stands at three every 25 years. What did it say before the first Wizarding War? Because 100% it said something super important and we may or may not find out about it. Uh, We will if Ron's not in the same room as Nick when he tells us the damn answer. (laughs) Um, Harry being ostracized is interesting and authentic and I I like Harry acknowledging himself the fool that he didn't that he didn't see it coming. It's one of those things of where we talked about this that this is a narrative that Harry needed to control and Dumbledore needed to control from the get-go. They needed a story. They needed to get out there and talk about it early, often, cuz everyone's going to have questions about what the hell happened. He arrived back in a spot with a cup and a corpse with no explanation yelling Voldemort's back. And then they shuttled him off for several months with no further follow-up and no chance for him to talk to anybody else about it. Of course they're going to have questions, and without you providing answers, they're going to invent their own. And they have. Non-stop, because that's human nature. So it's entirely predictable, it's entirely authentic that this has happened. It's just unfortunate that Harry's now very much on the wrong end of it. And I want to lay at least some of the blame at Dumbledore's feet with respect to it. I, this really feels like a Ministry of Magic coming to Dumbledore and saying, if you talk about what happened and tell them Harry's story, we're just going to, like, surround your shit with Dementors. Like, like, we just don't care anymore. Like, this is the, this is crossing the Rubicon if you do this. We will outright do everything possible to end you. I mean, 100%, because, like, we know that there's a whole bunch of Voldemort influence, and so the best way to single out Harry and undermine Dumbledore and basically everybody is to not let them talk about it. And so everybody that might be supportive. Yeah. I mean, and then there's a vacuum that the, um, an information vacuum that, uh, the daily prophet can easily feel, fill with misinformation and outright lies. Mm -hmm. Um, who on the daily prophet do we think has the dark mark? (laughs) Well, we only know a few people on the Daily Prophet, one of whom may or may not still be a beetle. (laughs) I have to believe somebody would have followed up on that at some point. No, she's been right. She has been right. Wasn't she, Rita Skeeter, one of the people who had been writing this summer? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, since she isn't working for BuzzFeed. (laughs) Oh, God. Um... In terms of characters that you guys well know are near and dear to my heart, I adore Neville coming into his own in the course of this series, in particular this chapter. I mean, over the course of just ten pages or whatever else it is, we get him speaking his mind, we get him defending his defending his friends publicly, openly, with well-reasoned arguments. We get him remembering the damn password to the common room, which he's never done before in his entire life. It's, it, it's outright cheerworthy to see how far this guy's gone. I mean, it does help that it is what he's been nerding about for most of the summer, probably. It's still growth. <laughs> Neville book one, he would have lost the plant before he ever made it back to the room, much less remembered the damn name of the plant. That's true. Um, but really, we already discussed the idea of uh, sadly losing friends over losing friends and family over news sources, which we're getting to see that first and foremost in this chapter. Um, yeah, it's really kind of all I got. Sarah, how the hell do you grade this one in terms of just who wins, who loses? This is... I mean... Go ahead, BJ. Spencer, I feel like you had a good offering for a winner. Neville for winner? He's so secondary, though. I think I would like to give a sort of... In the same way that we have talked about charting Harry's mood in relation to whether Hedwig is in the chapter or not, Mm -hmm. just a sort of, like, single line off on its own telling us where Neville is in the world. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I do actually, I think Neville is, is a pretty good option, but maybe not as central as he needs to be to be an actual winner of the chapter. I, I'm going to put forward Umbridge as a winner of this chapter. I, I very much agree. It's who I was going to pick. If she feels like she is, she certainly believes this is her moment of triumph. She has finally intervened in what has previously been a closed-off institution. She will bring guidance, she will bring wisdom, she will bring proper order to this chaos that's been there in place. And she is reveling in it. So, the only issue that I have with that Mm -hmm. is how inconsequential her grand speech was. I think Hermione might have been the only one (laughs) that listened. 
I think she was. So I think she wanted it that way. Okay. This was a cover, effectively. I I think that she. I well, I don't know. It's hard because why give the speech at all in the first place? But yeah. I think that she kind of know. I think she has a sense that if people are really paying attention and know what the under thinly veiled underbelly of what she's saying actually is at Hogwarts at this moment, that there's going to be pushback that she doesn't want. Um, And so in some ways, I think that she is, whether intentionally or not, she is benefiting from the fact that it was not actually like, listen, listen to what? Spencer, what's the the word that people use for like Boris Johnson talking, where he just like spouts? <laughs> they use a lot of words. <laughs> yeah, but like it, there's a specific word that that came into popularity fairly recently about like you just spew so much BS and and like random opinions long enough that everyone just like kind of gets uh, like kind of stops paying attention to what you're actually saying. Mm-hmm. I- I don't remember the phrase, but yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so that that's, I guess that, I guess I don't see Dolores doing it that way, just because, I think because I have, like, the couple of scenes that I've sort of caught of Harry Potter and the actress who plays her, and how yeah. she acts, Yeah. and that's so different from that being done in this speech. Well, but what I think is happening here is that the same effect is being reached through a different sure. tone and style. It's being done through this sort of like um, administrative propaganda, essentially, well, right? And, and that gives me questions about who the intended audience was. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the very beginning of the speech, she's talking like she's talking to five-year-olds. And I think that's the only point she's actually talking to the kids. Yeah. And then from there, the main people who are reacting and the only people who are listening other than Hermione is the other professors on stage. Mm -hmm. I think to a certain degree, this is a shot across their nose about this is what you've been doing and this is how I'm going to fix it now. And there's nothing you can do about it, sons. Buckle your seatbelt. Here we go. Particularly the fact she interrupted Dumbledore to make it happen, which is such a power play over him, which left the other professors flabbergasted Mm -hmm. because none of them ever would. Mm -hmm. It's, It's this clear statement to them of that, yeah, he's the figurehead, but I can kind of do what I want. Don't get in my way. I, either way, I agree with her be, get, getting the getting the nod here. Even if, even if the speech was an abject failure, she certainly believed it was a success, and she's also intimidated those that could be the biggest threat to her. Yeah, that yeah, there is there is that. She is she is doing the thing she came here to do. I think is mm-hmm. um, as far as losers, I don't. I so I I, I like that interpretation. I have. My my question for you with that is, in terms of, like, losers, yes, this isn't, like, a question question. Um, what do you think the rest of the professors were doing during this speech? Because I sort of imagine Dumbledore damn near picking his nose and, and like, inspecting his buggers because, like, that's am- the amount of attention he's going to pay. And it was just like, okay, you're going to talk. I, I've already I think, eaten. I mean, or not. We, we know several professors were staring daggers at her because we heard yeah. that described. McGonagall in particular was about to get out of her chair. Yeah. Um, Sprout, as you, as you said, Sarah, was actually getting invested and kind of pissed off and concerned with respect to this speech. Dumbledore, I kind of picture just b- appearing to be politely indifferent, but stewing inside. Interesting. I, Yeah, we do have him. He looks taken aback for a moment. And uh, then he sat down smartly and looked alertly at Professor Umbridge as though he desired nothing better than to listen to her talk. So, yeah. I mean, I think that he also knows what is happening here. Yeah. Um, okay. And that it's not nothing, because up to this point, yeah. he has successfully kept the Ministry from interfering at Hogwarts, and this is not that. Yeah. It, it was one of the things with Dumbledore, of where the man doesn't want to play the game, but from what we've seen, the man knows how to play the game, and can do it so pretty well. I mean, like, as we saw in the Wizard Gambit, he's pretty effective at manipulating people when it comes to political situations and knows what particular things to hit. He just doesn't want to be part of it. I think, I think, I'm not sure I agree with you, Spencer. I think that he's very powerful and can be mm-hmm. manipulative in, in a way where, in a way where he's stepping on toes. He, he mm-hmm. is using up his, uh, his collateral as, his capital. yes, thank you, Spencer, his capital, like, as he is moving through this and he has enough raw power as a wizard and as 
and a presumably girls. a professor that has trained basically everybody in the Ministry of Magic, and you know, he, and his presence that he can get away with it for a time, but he's not politically savvy and he's not interpersonally savvy. I'm going to disagree with you. I think the biggest flaw that he has is just distance. I think he's just consciously tried to keep himself separate and apart from it, and that diminishes his resources. But I don't think it's a lack of skill or a lack of understanding. Because I, okay. I think, I, and I think, I think he's able to work subtly in a pretty impressive way from some of the moves we've seen before, and even the organizations he's directly fostering. Um, how successful he will be when he, did, he clearly is lacking resources and has been voluntarily or not removed from a lot of the movers and shakers for a while, that stands to be seen. I mean, and I think you're making a good case for Dumbledore being the loser of the chapter. Well, and this is, I was actually going to kind of, A, I wanted to say this is a super interesting conversation to continue to have throughout this book because we are going to see these forces kind of against each other and see what Dumbledore does, right? Um, But I do think that to this point, Dumbledore could easily be the loser of this chapter. We could even broaden it out to the um, to the idea that, like, the Hogwarts staff is the loser of this chapter. Um, just given the reactions that we've talked about and what we have, I think, decided the intent of Umbridge's little speech was, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a problem for them and their way of life. It, it's one of those things that we're one of the most institutional foundational rules we've had of Dumbledore is that he gets to run this ship without outside interference. Mm-hmm. The fact that the Dementors were allowed to be outside the school was just utterly unacceptable to him from the get-go. Right, yeah. the books back. Mm-hmm. Now that there is a direct ministry influence inside the school and he's seemingly powerless to do anything about it, this is a man that has been effectively humbled in a way we didn't know was even possible a few books back. So Where let's... do we think Snape is? Oh yeah, we do not get any description of what Snape is doing. That's true. Or how he's reacting to any of that. I don't think he's mentioned in this chapter. Nope. I mean, he could not be in the room. We, I, I mean, we assume true, that he yeah. is. But I mean, like, anyway. I, I, I assume he is, because if he wasn't, I'd feel like Harry would mention that. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so yeah. let's say for, for loser, we'll do Dumbledore with an asterisk leading to as a stand-in for all Hogwarts staff. The subtitle. Yeah. Yes. Dumbledore, colon, the, the general staff of Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah. I, I support this decision because otherwise my fallback would be Hagrid, and this just feels so damn cyclical, I don't want to pick him. He, yeah. he has to be, people have to be in the chapter. To actually physically appear to in the chapter. To win or lose. Yes. This is true. Very good call. Um, questions? To what degree should we be led to believe that Dumbledore plays a role in what the hat says? Spencer, have you been in court recently? Because, holy shit. (laughs) Yes, Your Honor, I have. Uh, My question still stands. (laughs) Um. Because it's like, this is a hell of a time to deliver this speech, and it feels like something that Dumbledore would really want the hat to say right now. Yeah, it's a... That's an interesting question because I think that we kind of have. Is it is, we, is it you know par- parallel evolution? They're same stimuli and responding to those same events just from being near each other, or is there conspiracy? Do we do we have enough to say? I don't think we have enough to say. I would lean towards parallel evolution simply because I my sense is that Dumbledore is. The Dumbledore at the end of book four, who was giving the end of term speech calling for unity, I think is not the same Dumbledore that we have now. Um, I think his frustration with the ministry that we saw and frustration with Fudge particularly um, has potentially, I don't don't know that we have a whole bunch of concrete evidence for this, but just my sense is that that has like potentially colored how he is, is thinking about whether unity is possible at this point. Um, I'm not sure. But to, to me, the hat is, while presenting a dire warning against the dangers of disunity um, and of infighting, is presenting a much more optimistic view on the possibility of creating unity than I personally think Dumbledore has right now. 
that that is a fascinating read. I'm gonna have to consider the idea of the idea of a jaded Dumbledore now uh, now being what we see and now being the one that's driving these kind of decisions is interesting. A jaded, cynical Dumbledore is a kind of a terrifying concept. <laughs> um, BJ, do you have a sense of where the hat's getting its ins- its insights? Um, I statements of the day. I have a theory. Okay. Please. Um, and. I don't have evidence for this, but it just, this this feels like the type of thing that the hat could be, which is, uh, like, kind of non-temporal entity, that it mm. kind of knows, like, the history, like, the, the, the history and future of its existence, and maybe not, like, to a complete degree, and so it has some foretelling capabilities um, and and like how much of, of the foretelling that it has and how much agency that it has is sort of unclear, but like it seems to have some sort of interest and thoughtfulness to like what's gonna happen in the future. I mean, and I think we had hints of this when Harry was wearing the hat and talking about like Harry's achievements sort of either way and so I guess I sort of imagine that like some of the individual and broad strokes of its sorting is something that it has some knowledge of the future. And what, what a fun Vonnegut read on the hat. The idea that it's <laughs> unstuck in time Billy Pilgrim style is kind of fun. I'd, l- I'd love to see that kind of worked out. Yeah, no kidding. I would also uh, like to point out that you, BJ, have made an exceptional case for uh, the sorting hat teaching divination rather than <laughs> Professor Trelawney. <laughs> Trelawney doesn't do anything useful. So um, I guess like part of the like the end of the things that the hat was saying was just struck me as like a weird thing for a, I mean, unless it's, you know, just sort of like analyzing a lot of past patterns and just, you know, part of Dumbledore's, uh, you know, in Dumbledore's office and whatever. But th- this, given that it's magical and we kind of know that divination is possible, it seems like the type of thing that would have that, Mm-hmm. in it um, because like what better what better power to have than foresight to sort children into the best house for them for their entire future uh, well, other questions question, no, bj it's technically your turn do you, get a, you have another question uh i have i have a much more inconsequential question oh great how are passwords set by the fat lady because the students leave for mm-hmm. breaks and the password changes at some point. And then all of the students have to find out the password and enter at some point. How so does this pre- work? The, the, the fat lady chooses a password. Um, I, think, I think that she then communicates. I, I think that this is like a thing that Dumbledore goes around and asks the paintings about before <laughs> term starts. And that he communicates those passwords to the prefects who are in an ideal world in which uh, Ron is not just insulting first years, they are in charge of then spreading the word about to the house. Gotcha. Um, but I do, I do like the idea of one of Dumbledore's sort of like preterm duties being personally collecting the passwords uh, from from each house. Uh, from each so, house. So is this password Dumbledore's personal little gift to Neville? Maybe, or the fat ladies. Maybe the fat lady was like, I cannot have this child <laughs> sleep outside one more day. And also oh lose the password and or accidentally give it up so it has to be changed for like another five times this yes. term. Yes, yes. Let um, me um, play to the lowest common denominator here. This also kind of feels like a, once Dumbledore is no longer in uh, the position of headmaster, kind of like a Mrs. Landingham putting the pen in the president's jacket where just like nobody knows the passwords and all the kids are just sitting outside of the various uh, dormitories just like well didn't you find out the password no no because because it's some because presumably it will be between terms that there is a new headmaster and it'll be between terms that new prefects are chosen and so anyway um, the other thing that I wanted to point out is that the house passwords are probably better than most computer passwords that you are forced to mm-hmm. uh, do in True. terms of like how hard they are to crack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. D- just sheer number of letters. 
much superior. And we find out later, this is a little bit of a spoiler, I don't think we've had this already, uh, to get into Ravenclaw House, you have to answer a riddle. If we want further proof that I would never make it into that house, <laughs> I literally would never make it into that house. Oh, you would uh, wander the halls until the Hufflepuffs let you in. Remember the little RPG that we did? That would be all my exact stories, just sleeping somewhere random. <laughs> uh, um, should, should we take anything out of the fact that Dolores Umbridge is the Defense Against the Dark Arts t-shirt other than that that position was available? Does she have any unique skills that she's bringing to bear to get that position in particular, or is it just because that was the open slot? We're going we're, we're gonna to go to class soon, Spencer, and see. I, I think that there okay. is a, a four-letter kind of word now that that would very much fit this. Rafo or Rafo? I don't know what this means. Read and find out. Oh, okay. I I'm hate using it. that one. <laughs> Two different You're responses. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I, I'll use that in the law all the damn time. <laughs> um, other questions? Um, I think I had one more, but it's not that important. Um, I don't know. This this felt like a very illuminating chapter but like most of the questions are all right well that's going to be a plot point well that's going to be a plot point yeah sure Mm -hmm. uh okay um well if there are not any more questions uh we can do the reveal of the next chapter which is chapter 12 professor umbridge oh dear i'm curious to see the pic is it a picture of her Uh, yeah it is it's a really weird picture yeah um they're emphasizing the toady aspect of her description yes yes yeah, that, that's not how... I get that's a heavy part of her description as being this kind of bloated bullfrog, but that's not how I've been kind of seeing her in my head. No. And this is, I, you know, we've talked about sometimes um, where the movies have made, especially aesthetic decisions that are different from what is going on in the book. And I actually, I appreciate how the movies handled this character, for better or worse. I mean, I know that... This is not uh, played by the the actress that does Nurse Ratchet, but like, my brain <laughs> insists that it is. Sure. Um, y'all, I'm obviously very much looking forward to the next chapter. Uh, looking forward to discussing with y'all soon. This has been fun, Sounds y'all. Good.